Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So much of this work and so much of my mission, it's uh, about... Uh, you know, it's like midwifery, right? And being able to pull out of individuals what they can't push out on their own, right? And I tell this story, I, you know, I have four children and I was there for the uh, delivery of all four of uh, my uh, children. And uh, my uh, final born child, I had twin boys, Cameron and Caleb. And Caleb uh, in the delivery room, uh, his twin brother came out, Cameron, and no matter how hard my wife Desiree pushed, Caleb would not come out. I was like, "What's happening? She done already pushed out four babies in her lifetime." And <laughs> Caleb was breached. He was turned around. You know, babies come out head first, and they weren't ready for a C-section. And nine minutes after his twin brother Cameron was born, Caleb's vital signs were beginning to drop. And the doctor said, I have to go in and pull him out, right? And pulled Caleb out uh, by his feet. And so many of us leaders uh, who have pushed out great things, but the thing that we are called to really push out that is going to make a transformational impact in the world, we will never push out alone. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Sean, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. And I am very delighted to learn that you've actually been a longtime listener, which I didn't know, but I actually found out about your work through two of our former guests, uh, Chris Wilson and TK Coleman. And we will get into all of that. Um, but I was so intrigued by what you're up to. I thought you were doing a lot of really amazing work in the world. And I think that given the nature of your work, I think this is a very fitting question to start with. And that is, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having uh, on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career and the work that you're doing today? So uh, I'm a native New Yorker. Uh, I've lived in every borough except for Staten Island and spent most of uh, my formative years in Harlem and on the Upper West Side of uh, Manhattan raised uh, by a single mom, strong Jamaican woman, uh, uh, Deanna. And uh, she just exposed me uh, to uh, a, a great deal, right? And so uh, I think, you know, tr- 
traveling through all of the boroughs. Uh, I've had a lot of uh, exploration and uh, my life has just been one of uh, so many du- dualities, right, and dichotomies. Uh, mm. Living in Harlem and uh, essentially, uh, you know, being around just uh, all black people, right, and then moving down to the Upper West Side and uh, it being uh, uh, mixed uh, uh, and more, more diverse. And so, I think it's allowed me to uh, navigate uh, different worlds. And Mm -hmm. uh, I like to say, uh, I think I can effectively navigate both the boardroom and the block, city hall and the corner. And a lot of that has to do with just uh, my upbringing and just traveling and uh, uh, surviving and thriving in different circles. Yeah. Uh Yeah. you're growing up with a single mom. Uh, you know, obviously, I don't know, have any idea what that is like, but what misperceptions do you think that people have about that? Uh, what do you think the impact has been of not having had a father figure in your life? And just out of curiosity, have you ever connected with your, your father? Do you know anything about him? Uh, these are the things that just I, I'm very curious about because it, it seems like such a different experience. And then the other question is so often when uh, children are raised by a single parent, that ends up having a, an incredibly detrimental effect on their life. And you seem to have transcended that in very big ways. I know because I've read your about page. I mean, you went to Columbia. You, know, you seem to have overcome what would typically be an environment that could actually hold somebody back. So uh, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I think narrative uh, is just a powerful thing and uh, perception. And uh, I do think, and particularly in the African-American community, right, there's this perception of uh, if you are raised by a single mom, uh, that is a life of uh, a squalor and hardship and uh, a, a difficulty. And so um Quite the contrary. Uh, my mother, who uh, is, I guess, the first entrepreneur uh, and creative uh, in my life, was very resilient and resourceful. And uh, what was interesting is that uh, early on, um, she found uh, someone that took care of uh, children, right? So we were living in the South Bronx, and she found this woman, uh, Lillian Smith, uh, who uh, took care of uh, uh, other kids, right? And Lillian, uh, we called her Lel, was a classic uh, 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 big mom, uh, big mom, a uh, pa- uh, matriarch uh, in the community. And uh, we grew up on 119th Street and Lenox Avenue. And so during the week, I was in Harlem, and on the weekends with my uh uh, my mother. And, you know, this sense of community is really uh, uh, important in building a community. And while I did not grow up with my father, I was very close to uh, his uh, uh, his parents. Uh, so uh, my grandmother and grandfather on his side, they would, you know, they grew up, uh, they lived in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and they would uh, pick me up and I would spend weekends uh, uh, with them. And so, I never woke up one day to say good morning, dad. You know, my, my, my father wasn't in my life. We eventually, uh, developed a, a, a relationship and, uh, it was more of a, a intersection and then, uh, being intertwined, I, I, I would say. But, uh, I think it's really important for folks to understand just because, uh, someone is raised by a single mom, um, that does not, uh, uh, in, in some cases, that's an asset. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? Uh, looking at my story from behind, uh, you know, backwards, uh, I think it was an asset that uh, I was raised by uh, a, a single mom and uh, the resourcefulness that uh, uh, she she had. And what's really interesting, I'm an, I'm an only child, right? Uh, I do have a half brother and half uh, sister. Uh, my father eventually, uh, he did get married um, and had twins. And what was really interesting, I had this duality of both being a single uh, um, only child, but um, growing up with uh, Lau during the week, she took care of uh, a bunch of other uh, uh, kids, right? There's this movie out there, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, called Lackawanna Blues by Hill Harper. And uh, he grew up in this boarding house, and Lau had a bunch of boarders. And uh, she also... Uh, Ran numbers and uh, Srini, I don't know if you're familiar uh, with uh, the numbers system, but it was uh, an underground economy uh, in the African American co- uh, community where, um, like today, there's uh, the Lotto and the uh, Powerball and the Mega Millions. Uh, in the African American communities across the country, uh, there was uh, the numbers, and uh, she ran numbers. Lel, who was uh, my godmother. Uh, with the father of a notorious uh, Harlem uh, a, a drug lord uh, by the name of Nicky Barnes. And so his father, Roy Barnes. And so there was a lot of activity and a lot of folks coming in and out of the uh, house. Uh, the borders, uh, one border, you know, lots of stories and characters. Uh, Mr. Archie, who was who also lived in the apartment. This is one of these old Harlem apartments. There were like seven rooms uh, uh, in the, the apartment. He was from Barbados. He was a Bayesian. And uh, Mr. Archie's story was no matter what the number was that day, whatever those three numbers uh, were, when Mr. Archie came home, if it was 475, you can guarantee Mr. Archie was going to say in his uh, Bayesian uh, dialect, 475, I was going to play that number. And so I had a very rich uh, and robust childhood. Uh, yes, all around me there uh, there were drugs. Uh, there was there was uh, uh, there was violence, uh, uh, but there was still a sense of uh, growing up uh, in the seventies uh, uh, and you know uh, late sixties in Harlem, uh, a sense of community. And yeah. that if I did something a block away um, on the corner of 119th Street and 7th Avenue, uh, there was a sense of ownership and community. And, uh, you know, the adults knew who I was. Oh, that's one of Lel's kids. Right. And so if I got in trouble and I was doing something I wasn't supposed to do, uh, adults in the community felt a sense of ownership and they would reprimand you. And by the time I got a block away to uh, where I lived, and this was long before a text or a, a, a DM or, or social media word traveled, right? And so I got reprimanded uh, uh, outside. And when I got home, I got reprimanded. You know, I uh, tease and say that, you know, I have a PhD from uh, UCLA. And uh, UCLA, for those that know Harlem, uh, is the university on the corner of Lenox, uh, Lenox Avenue. And so uh, my mother uh, just has had an, uh, you know, powerful impact. She's taught me sacrifice. Uh, We uh, moved together full time um, 
at fifth grade uh, when we moved down to the Upper West Side. And, you know, one of the things, it was a one-bedroom apartment. And she gave me, you know, her 12-year-old son the bedroom, and she slept on the uh, pull-out couch and uh, just saw her be resourceful and uh, just... So I think it's really important that folks don't misunderstand that just because someone has a single uh, uh, parent, uh, that that is a negative or, uh, or, or detriment. Yeah. So I, mean, I think the, the interesting thing is you mentioned that you, uh, you know, were around an environment where there were drugs, there were violence. And I imagine that there are probably people who uh, I come from, you know, the neighborhoods that you grew up in that ended up on a very different path. And so there are two questions that come from that. You mentioned that your, your mother is Jamaican. Was she first generation? And if so, I, I wonder, you know, what impact being an immigrant had on the way that she went about raising you? Because I think that when you grew up in an Indian family, particularly, you know, our parents, like we're probably semi-close in age based on, on kind of what you're telling me. And my parents came here and they had nothing. It was literally, we're starting from scratch and they had a very clear way of, of sort of educating us and, and making us go through the world, which was, you're going to be upstanding citizens of society. If we have anything to do with it, you're going to be, you know, more than that. <laughs> and so, so I wonder, yeah. uh, you know, about the immigrant aspect of it, but also then, you know, why do you get somebody who ends up, you know, the way that you do, despite being in a neighborhood like that? And then why do we have somebody like Chris Wilson? Uh, who comes from a neighborhood like that? Well, you know, what's interesting um, is that there's a Chris Wilson uh, inside of me, right? I'm this uh, part of my Chris Wilson story is uh, my story, not to the extreme. Uh, I uh, was never incarcerated, uh, but uh, got caught up in the drug culture. And, uh, you know, this September, I'll have uh, 30 years clean without a drink or a drug. But, um Growing up where I grew up, it was almost hard to escape um, those challenges, right? And I was just fortunate and blessed that uh, uh, my story didn't turn out exactly like Chris Wilson's uh, uh, story. So uh, it, was, it was not like I was unscathed, right? So, but I think the uh, the point about the uh, immigrant family and my mother coming from Jamaica and what was interesting is that her mother. Uh, came here first, and uh, then my mother uh, uh, came uh, to to the states. And my mother's very independent. She was a a flower child, uh, uh, a hippie type, very independent. But education was paramount, um, and uh, she just. Uh, instill that uh, in me. And one of my memories of growing up is that my mother always had books uh, around the house, right? They were like uh, to the ceiling high bookshelves. And I was just surrounded uh, uh, by books. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, picking books uh, off of the bookshelf and looking as a, in my early adolescence and looking for uh, the steamy sex scenes uh, uh, in the book. But this love <laughs> of reading uh, was, uh, was, was always, uh, uh, there. And when you think about education and decisions, uh, you know, a, a transformational moment and, and decision that my mother made, right? So when I moved down to the, uh, Upper West Side, 
uh, I went to this middle school uh, called IS44, which is right across the street from the Museum of Natural uh, History, right? And uh, transferred from a school in Harlem uh, that was all black to uh, a, a diverse school and Asians and, and, and uh, white kids. And uh, after sixth grade in IS44, you had to make a choice between, or you can make a choice between major math and science or major gym. Yes, major gym. And I remember when the permission slips uh, came home because all of my friends and all of my homeboys were like, yeah, we're going to major gym, playing sock hockey tournaments and, and, and all of that. And I remember coming home and uh, giving my mother the permission slip for me to, uh, for seventh and eighth grade, to be in major gym. And she looked at me and said, you have got to be out of your mind. There is no way you're going to major gym. And you're going to major math and science, right? And so for two uh -huh. years, I had a big resentment with my mother because all of my friends, um, and we talk about racial equity, um, the dynamic was, most of the black and Latino uh, students were in major gym. Most of the Asian and white students were in major math science. It was just amazing how this uh, turned out, right? And, uh, you know, a lot of it not by uh, accident. And so while I was uh, dissecting frogs and uh, messing with a Bunsen burner, uh, my friends, uh, and this was like, on the same floor, but different ends of the hall, right? Um, different qualities of teaching. And um, I had a resentment, you know, that, you know, I couldn't hang out with my friends. And then when it was time to graduate um, and go on to high school, all the students from major math and science were going to specialized high schools in New York City, like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech. I went to Brooklyn Tech. I thought I wanted to be an archi uh, architect. And I had to actually go to summer school because I missed the exam by one point to get in. And all of the students from major uh, gym were going to the neighborhood high schools. And many of them turned out fine or live successful lives, but the chances and the exposure, and I saw that, God, in retrospect, there was a track in then. But that was a decision um, that my mother made, right? Because if, if it was up to me, I would have been in major gym. And there's so many decisions like that, Srini, over my life that uh, others have made. And um, I've just been blessed to have an amazing cohort of mentors and, 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 and people that saw something in me before I saw something in myself. And uh, so education was uh, really independent. My mother was a risk taker uh, and she exposed me to a lot. Uh, every summer starting at six years old, uh, I was shipped off to a summer camp. Uh, the Fresh Year Fund, um, and was exposed to a, a, a different things. And, you know, uh, when I was uh, in my sophomore, no, my junior year of high school, uh, I was involved in this youth program called the Dome Project uh, on the Upper West Side, which had just an amazing um, change in my life, the trajectory of change in my life. And my mother allowed me to, uh, during my... Uh, spring break, uh, do a project and take a bus from New York 
to California to visit youth programs in California. And by bus, me and another young man uh, went and other parents were like, you're allowing your uh, son to go across country on a bus. And my mother was like, yes, you know, it's going to be great exposure. And uh, so it was things like that, the risk taken that I think I, I inherited uh, as well. You know, there's one other thing I wanted to say about my mother is that my mother and father, who were never married, but they were both dancers. And uh, that's how they met. Right? And uh, that's how I was conceived. And uh, uh, my mother was a, a great dancer and she was also a great seamstress. Right. And uh, for a time she made my clothes. You know, uh, I have pictures of, uh, you know, so when I grew up, I had a big afro uh, like Michael Jackson. And she <laughs> uh, would make my clothes. I have pictures of me in a powder blue jumpsuit that uh, uh, I won't post because it would be very, uh, uh, I would be ridiculed. And, Damn it, um, I was going to ask you to let us use that as your album cover for the Unmistakable yeah, 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 you know, and, and But the thing about it, what she did was, and I learned to sacrifice, as I shared earlier, how she uh, uh, slept on the pull-out couch in the living room and gave me the bedroom. Uh, my mother decided to not pursue her artistic talents and, 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 and passions and gifts in order to uh, raise me and to work. Uh, she wound up working 30 years for the federal government, uh, and she sacrificed a lot uh, uh, for me, right? And um, sometimes uh, or too often uh, parents don't do that, right? And so I, I, I thank my mother uh, uh, every day. Uh, for that. And I just recently uh, had my 35th college reunion uh, at Wesleyan University. I didn't go. I couldn't go, but they provided me with a service award uh, just for my, uh, you know, the work that I've done since graduating. And, you know, and I sent that to her and say, you know what, uh, I'm not putting this on my wall, you know, on my wall, right? Uh, this belongs to you. And uh, there's just so many um, things that I've done over my career. If it were not for her, and my mentors and this whole sense of community around me uh, yeah. never would have happened. Wow. Uh, so many more questions. So, you know, I think that one of the things uh, that I, I noticed uh, when I was looking at your website was you talk about this idea of, you know, giving uh, a voice to people who have been marginalized. And we'll actually get into what your work is about. Uh, but I want to talk about this idea of being marginalized and, and how you define marginalized, what it means. And, and, you know, what is a person who comes from a place of privilege not really understand what it means to be marginalized? Because I think that you know, at this point, you know, Sean, both of us are living lives of privilege. I mean, you're a graduate from Wesleyan in Columbia. I went to Berkeley and I have a Pepperdine MBA. We'd be kidding ourselves if we lied about the fact that we are approaching this life with a level of privilege that other people don't have and may never have access to. And, you know, part of why th this particular, that definition of marginalized came up for me is because of, uh, you know, I think you. My guess is you've probably already seen it since it's in the news. Uh, the the documentary or the the film about the Central Park Five. You probably yes. were grew up around that time, right? Yes, yes, indeed. I lived uh, like four blocks away. I lived in Towers on the Park and 110th and Frederick Douglass Avenue. And uh, the young men uh, they lived uh, four blocks away on Fifth Avenue and uh, Schomburg Towers. And yes, I remember that uh, in 1989 when um, it happened. And so, uh, 
Ava just did a marvelous job telling and giving life uh, uh, to their uh, stories. And so when we talk about privilege and when we talk about marginalization, um, you know, we have to go to the roots of uh, this country and the, 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 the founding fathers and uh, the, uh, in a sense, the schizophrenia that this country uh, is based on, right? And on one hand, uh, values of uh, the land of the free and the brave and uh, the pursuit of happiness in one hand. and uh, But in the other hand, uh, the country built um, on the legacy of slavery and white supremacy and uh, the spreading of an ideology that one race and, 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 and color is better than, uh, uh, than the other, right? And so when we talk about marginalization, uh, today in 2019, uh, we certainly have to put it in the context of the last 400 years of, uh, of, uh, this nation. And I certainly believe that there are, uh, levels of, of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I certainly, uh, and that's when I have five questions that I ask the leaders that I'm associated with, right? And, uh, one of those questions, uh, is, you know, what are you doing, uh, about your privilege, right? And, uh, yes, I do have a certain level of privilege, uh, being a man, being a black man, uh, graduating from an institution, uh, like, uh, Wesleyan University. Uh, but if I'm pulled over, uh, by police officers, uh, there is nothing that is flashing on my forehead that is a scorecard of that privilege, right? right. That privilege goes out the, uh, uh, out the window dependent on the uh, uh, context. And I just think that um, this nation and, and we're just like uh, still has to reconcile uh, its roots, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's roots of uh, violence and, 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 and uh, slavery and that that continues uh, uh, today. And so there are so many policies and structures and systems that, Ensure uh, that poor people, right, and, and, and many of whom uh, people of color, uh, stay poor and stay marginalized, right? And so I think that uh, that's why I have this inner compass of uh, doing the work uh, uh, that I do, leading the campaign for uh, Black Male Achievement. And, you know, one of our mission uh, uh, mantras uh, is that, you know, there's no cavalry coming to save the day uh, in our communities, that uh, we're the iconic leaders that uh, we've been waiting for, the curators of the change that we're seeking uh, uh, to see. And what I have seen in my career, what I've seen in myself, uh, adversity, uh, has become an asset, right? And being able to bounce back, uh, from racism and, uh, being able to do that as an individual is one thing, but, uh, doing, being able to do it as a, uh, people is a fight that we are still, uh, still engaged in. And yeah. one of the things that I think is really important when I think, when I say, you know, we're the iconic leaders that we are waiting for. Um, the most marginalized people in not only this nation, uh, uh, in the world, uh, 
just have, I believe we all have genius, right? And, and, and that we all have a, a brilliance and uh, the resiliency that I have witnessed um, despite the structures and the systems and the racism of uh, particularly black people and black people in America is uh, phenomenal and it's uh, 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 in, in inspiring, right? And so uh, one thing is, uh, and I've done this through my career, is certainly being an advocate and a champion and uh, lifting barriers and uh, uh, creating platforms of opportunity for marginalized populations. But even more so than that is providing the relationships and resources for folks to uh, become champions of change uh, for themselves. You know, there's this whole notion called uh, the power of positive deviance. And what the, the, the power of positive deviance lets us know is that the solution to the world's most intractable problems resides in the hands, the heads, and the hearts of those that are experiencing um, the oppression, right? And I've spent part of my career in philanthropy, and sometimes in philanthropy, we take on the persona that we are paratrooping into com communities with prescriptions and uh, solutions. And the truth of the matter is that the solutions and the prescriptions for change resides in those communities already, right? And so there's this whole notion, and Brian Stevenson talks about this a lot, right? He was on the uh, board of directors uh, when I was at the Open Society Foundation, this power of proximity, and that the folks that are closest to the issues and the problems are the ones with the most innovative uh, uh, solutions, right? But resources are really uh, important. And we talk about marginalization, that uh, we're talking about uh, uh, political marginalization and education and social, but uh, economic mobility and uh, access to uh, uh, resources and looking at America's wealth gap is um, really important when we have this conversation. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, you know, so there's, there's so many things that, that I want to ask you about this. Uh, you may have heard the, the conversation that I had with Desiree Attaway. We were talking about the intersections of race, class, culture, and gender. And we were talking about, you know, how each of us defines racism. And I think, you know, one of the things I said is the, it, it reminds me of this moment when I went to the Museum of Tolerance in LA, where they have two doors. And one door says that if you don't have any biases, walk through this door. If you do, walk through this door. And the one that basically says if you don't have any biases, walk this door is locked. It doesn't open, uh, which is a really interesting metaphor. And I, I mentioned this to her, like it, what was, you know, even, even growing up, you know, my parents are, are far from racist, but there was almost this, like, you know, there's like among Indian people are, are, we're kind of like, okay, the litmus test of your parents' racism is bring home a black girl, or a Muslim girl, and you'll figure out how racist or how tolerant your Indian parents really are. Uh, mm -hmm. Those are our two extremes for them. Like those are, those are like, literally you're kind of like, I could bring anybody home, but that would be kind of a litmus test, uh, despite how open-minded they claim to be. And so I wonder when you were young and also as, as you've gotten older, what were your first experiences with racism? How did you define it? And, and how has that changed with age? And you know, don't you think it's a little insane that two, 300 years after this country is formed, we're still having this conversation? Well, yes, I do think it's insane. Uh, but I think that just the construct of uh, racism is, uh, I think, based in uh an ideology of insanity to uh think that a uh um class and color uh of people uh are superior than uh another 
uh, a race of, of people, right? I, I think, you know, genetically we have more in common uh, than we uh, uh, have, have, have differences. Yeah. And what was really interesting about my uh, upbringing was that, you know, I was uh, exposed to, um, and I talked about this dichotomy, um, this different, um, you know, and I think my mother was really intentional uh, about this, right? And so while uh, going to grade school, all the way to fifth grade, you know, uh, my classes and most of the teachers were all black, right? Uh, but when I went to summer camp, uh, it was uh, it, it was mixed, and uh, and I would say that um, the you know race was always uh, uh, an issue, right? But it was a source of pride, and 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 you know, growing up, and uh, uh, Muhammad Ali was uh, my first hero. Uh, and seeing a, uh, a black man say that I'm fast, I'm pretty, and I can't possibly, uh, uh be beat and, uh, to be bold as he was gave me a sense of, uh, uh, uh pride. Uh, I was, uh, very young. I was, uh, just six years old or going on six years old, but I remember in Harlem, uh, the, uh, riots and uprising after Martin Luther King was uh, uh, assassinated, right? And that memory uh, uh, sticks in my head where there was a, a Woolworths on 116th Street and Lenox Avenue and being able to look out the window and uh, uh, seeing people running in and out of uh, uh, the, the Woolworths, right? And so um, I don't think that it's insane to still be having this conversation today because I think that we live in a system that is designed to perpetuate uh, the conversation and to perpetuate uh, the oppression of, uh, uh, of black and brown and, and, and poor uh, poor people. And until we reconcile and, and, and disrupt that system and that ideology, uh, we are not, uh, we're gonna still be having the same issues. Just, just yesterday, uh, there was congressional hearings on reparations. Yeah. And um, <laughs> someone sent and posted a, uh, a snapshot of, and I don't think, you know, I think that we have to stay open to all parties, right? Uh, but when we looked at one side of the aisle uh, of Congress, most folks didn't even show up to uh, listen or engage in this uh, um, uh, discussion. Yeah. And so power and wealth. Uh, is not um, easily, people think that, you know, in order for you to win, I have to lose, right? And I just think that that's just the equation and the way uh, the system has been designed in the United States. And, right, and, um, you know, I, a couple of summers ago, right, so uh, I, the summer of 2016, uh, even then, uh, up until that point, I, I lived and cling to this sense of idealism that, uh, in my lifetime, uh, things would change, uh, in this country. And I remember within a week, uh, there was the murder of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana by police caught on videotape. 
Uh, a week later, uh, Philando Castile outside of uh, Minneapolis uh, caught on a Facebook Live. He was murdered, right? Legally carrying firearms, right? And I had to uh, force myself to say, you know what, Sean? Racism is not going to end in your lifetime, right? Uh, this summer, we are celebrating uh, in Hampton Beach 400 years uh, uh, since uh, first enslaved Africans were thrown to the shores, right? So here we are 400 years in. And yes, on one hand, uh, there has been progress, but at the end of the day, um, black and brown people are still uh, oppressed. And me coming to this realization, you know what? It's not going to end in your lifetime. On one way, it was disheartening. In, in another way, it was a relief and permission for me to like, you know what, do what you can while you are here, pour into leaders, leave a legacy, and that you are part of a chain and, uh, and link and a lineage of uh, amazing uh, ancestral uh, uh, lineage that do what you can while you are here, right? And so that's what I've committed my life uh, uh, to. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I lead the campaign for uh, uh, Black Male Achievement. And it is really based in um, just the uh, premise that there is nothing wrong with Black men and boys uh, in this country. It's the uh, systems and the structures. And that uh, so much of our work is about shifting the narrative and focusing on the assets and uh, potential and possibilities of, uh, of, of black men and boys and, and, and the black community. And that being able to, uh, and this is why I like just, you know, being on this podcast and so much of the work that we've done over the years has been investing in uh, film and investing in podcasts and arts and culture and being able to, what I like to say, become masters of our own media and tell our own stories, right? That yeah. there is a, another side than what is projected uh, in mainstream uh, media. And look, uh, When They See Us, right, uh, by Ava DuVernay is a classic example of the power of uh, of media and our ability to have platforms to tell our own stories. Well, you're speaking my language is part of the reason I do what I do. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's fitting you brought up the Ava DuVernay and when they see us. So, you know, we're talking about the idea of being marginalized. So what I wonder is for how different that situation would be, you know, for a group of people who aren't marginalized, like how much of being marginalized is what put those kids in that situation to, to have them end up in the situation they did. So I don't know if marginalized, uh, is the proper context and framing, right? Uh, I think that, uh, when we look at race and the fact that these were five black boys, um, and when we look at uh, the, the the victim, a, a, a white woman, uh, there is a long history in this nation, right, uh, of uh, black people and black men um, being uh, railroaded and falsely accused, and so marginalized marginalization has something. Yes, to do with it, right? But I do think that the fact of race and that these were five black boys and would they 
have been treated the same way uh, if they were five white boys, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would venture to say no. Uh, you may have seen just this last week um, in uh, Phoenix, uh-huh. Arizona, uh, and, you know, I want to give a shout out uh, to the bravery of folks that are able to, in the face of danger, pull out their uh, phones and and, and capture videotape of um, these injustices. But you may have seen when uh, the police uh, with weapons drawn uh, with a report that a four year old uh, took a doll out of a dollar store. And um, how they assaulted and came up with guns drawn, a woman uh, with a baby in her hand and pregnant. And would that have been done if they were not black? Maybe, but I doubt it. Right. And and I'm not going to say that that does not happen. uh, But. I just think that the humanity of, uh, of, of, of black people, uh, in the United States and there's a widespread ideology that, uh, we are less deserving, um, that, um, we are threats and, uh, that, uh, we don't have a right and we can be treated any other way, which is absolutely a, a, a lie because we have a, a long history of liberation fighters, right? That, uh, say, no, you can't treat us any, uh, uh other way. And the, uh, when they see us chronicles that story right and yes there are other factors of uh, uh of poverty and legal representation being able to uh uh you know uh if you have and can afford uh the uh best lawyers right uh that that you know wealth has a uh impact but at the end of the day uh, i think it was less about them being marginalized and yeah. being five uh, 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 uh black boys and a case that had to be solved. Mm. So, you know, I want to spend some time talking about the work that you do at the campaign for uh, black male achievement. Uh, You know, I had a chance to look through your website and I guess really what I want to look at is maybe particularly look at a story of somebody who's come to you and kind of the impact and which I'm guessing you probably have dozens, um, probably to the point where we should probably have one of them as a guest on the show. Uh, but I, I wonder, you know, could you walk us through an example of, of, you know, one of these youths that comes to you and kind of, you know, maybe somebody who was headed down a wrong path and, and, you know, how you help them course correct. Sure. And I think it's uh, important to note that so the campaign for black male achievement, we were launched uh, at the Open Society Foundations, uh, which is the philanthropy of George Soros back in 2008. And we were originally supposed to be a three year uh, campaign to improve the life outcomes of, uh, of black men and boys. And uh, what's uh, interesting to know, too often in philanthropy, uh, we look at uh, generational and centuries long issues and say, we're going to solve this uh, problem in a three or five year uh, grant making cycle. And uh, the mere fact that we've been around uh, for still for 11 years uh, is a testament to so many folks, uh, spirit of entrepreneurialism, uh, uh, persistence, uh, 
relation relationships. And uh, so we started off as a grant making entity and um, over the last 11 years have uh, funded and supported and helped to launch um strategies across the country we've invested uh close to a quarter billion uh dollars right and cbma our focus uh is really on the leaders and the organizations that are working to improve uh, life outcomes of black men and boys and uh that's men and women it's a uh, multi uh gender multi race and folks think of the campaign for black male achievement uh we have uh over 8,000 individual members and half of them are women, right? And so there is, I think of uh, someone like uh, a Willie Hamilton uh, who runs the uh, United, uh, uh, Black Men United in Omaha, Nebraska. And, you know, we all have this sense of, you know, a need for belonging. And Willie, uh, eight years ago, said to me when we were in the foundation, Look, I don't want to uh, necessarily get a grant from you. It would be great. I just want to be a part of the campaign for Black Male Achievement. And by him coming to one of our events, you know, we do an annual gathering at the Muhammad Ali Center called Rumble, Young Man Rumble. Uh, and he represented uh, his city. And he was connected at this convening with 150 other leaders from across the country. And he realized that, you know what, I am not fighting this fight uh, alone. Like I'm not building and battling alone. You know, one of my uh, mission mantras is that God gave us two hands for a reason so that we can build and battle at the same time. And so much of this social justice, uh, uh, racial justice work, we got to do both. We got to build and we have to battle. And uh, he returned back to uh, Omaha and declared that, you know, uh, he was part of the campaign for Black Male Achievement and with his organization and began to get others in his city uh, engaged. And so there was this ripple uh, uh, effect, right? And so while it's a national movement, the change really happens uh, locally, right? Uh, it happens in, in, in places. And uh, we say that, you know, uh, your promise of place, which is our place-based strategy, is wherever you decide to uh, 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 take a stand. And there are so many leaders like Willie Hamilton and the young people that they uh, work with across the country that are exposed to this national movement and that they are the next wave of uh, or the current wave of uh, social justice uh, leaders. You know, one of the things that uh, brings me uh, joy, um, we uh, have an opportunity to bring folks across the country to our uh, convenings and our gatherings and to uh, see a young man um, like Ernest, right? Ernest Butts, who is a fellow uh, uh, at the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. He never, uh, he was never in a plane. You know, he never flew before. And uh, two years ago was his first flight going to Louisville, uh, Kentucky for uh, the um, Rumble Young Man Rumble. 
And it was kind of like the Roger Bannister mile, right? Once he broke that four-minute mile and he had that exposure. Uh, he's in Puerto Rico uh, this summer and, and, and organizing and supporting folks that are still recovering uh, uh, from the uh, hurricane. And he did some traveling last year. And so much of this work, uh, I like to, and so much of my mission, it's uh, about... Uh, you know, it's like midwifery, right? And being able to pull out uh, of individuals uh, what they can't push out uh, on their on their own, right? And I tell this story. I you know I have four children, and I was there for the uh, delivery of all four of uh, my uh, children. And uh, my uh, final born child, I had twin boys, Cameron and Caleb. And Caleb, uh, in the delivery room, uh, his twin brother came out, Cameron. And no matter how hard my wife, Desiree, pushed, Caleb would not come out. I was like, what's happening? She done already pushed out four babies in her lifetime. And... Caleb was breached. He was turned around. You know, babies come out head first and they weren't ready for a C-section. And nine minutes after his twin brother Cameron was born, Caleb's vital signs were beginning to drop. And the doctor said, I have to go in and pull him out. Right. And pulled Caleb out uh, by his feet. And so many of us leaders uh, who have pushed out great things, but the thing that we are called to really push out that is going to make a transformational impact in the world, we will never push out alone. We need to get vulnerable and be able to say as leaders, and particularly when we're looking at black men, to be able to go to another man and say, or woman, and say, I have something inside of me and I need your help to pull it out. And I'm grateful that I've grown up in a generation where I've seen a shift uh, around masculinity and gender norms. Uh, My father and grandfather uh, to cry uh, was a sign of weakness, right? To be vulnerable was a sign of weakness and, and and to be afraid and to let somebody know that you were afraid uh, was a death uh, sentence in, in, in some cases. And uh, we are, with the Campaign for Black Male Achievement and so many of our partner organizations are in a space now where this whole notion of addressing toxic masculinity and patriarchy uh, is something that is acceptable and necessary in our community. And one of our members is a guy named Jason Wilson out of Detroit, who has a best-selling book. We just told his story. He'd be a great guest. Uh, It's called Cry Like a Man. Mm. And just really demystifying this whole notion of uh, emotional uh, sturdiness and not being able to share uh, uh, emotions. And I, and Srini, I, I tell the leaders that I'm associated with, if you are not engaged with a mentor, an executive coach, and a therapist, <laughs> you are at a disadvantage, right? And this whole notion of uh, addressing and pulling the covers off of mental health uh, in our community 
Uh, I'm just seeing so much more momentum over the years around this because to be black in America, uh, as James Baldwin uh, uh, said, and I'm paraphrasing, is uh, almost to be in a constant state of rage or uh, a, a constant state of rage. And so we need to be champions uh, and be able to share our vulnerabil- vulnerability as black men and to say, you know what, it is okay. You know, what? you don't tell a eight-year-old boy, don't cry and act like a man. He's eight years old. He's supposed to cry. It's okay to cry. And so what I'm seeing um, just across the country uh with so many of my peers and the next generation that it is okay to be emotionally uh, uh, vulnerable. And part of our work, uh, we launched uh, three, four years ago, BMA Health and Healing Strategies, when we are addressing the health, healing, and wellness of the leaders. So many of our leaders came to us and said, I am depressed, I am stressed out, I have been thinking about suicide. And we said, wow, uh, this is the cavalry, right? These are the leaders, the hometown heroes and local leaders uh, that we are investing in to do the work. If they are traumatized, how are we going to win? And so uh, we have just seen um, so many uh, investors um, over the last few years um, say, you know what? This issue of healing and wellness um, is important. Uh, there's a Dr. Sean Genright uh, in uh, San Francisco that uh, has really been crusading this notion of uh, healing-centered communities and schools. Uh, and so, I, you know, I'm encouraged. Uh, you know, I often, uh, when I look at the condition and the state and where we stand as Black people in this nation, uh, I often uh, say it's the paradox of promise and peril, because there is both a a peril. It is still perilous in this nation uh, for uh, a Black man. But I also see so much promise. And I know that you've done a lot of work around, you know, where you put your attention, right, and where you put your focus, right? Not that we ignore the peril, not that we ignore the liabilities, but we focus on the promise and the assets because I firmly believe that what we focus on uh, grows and we have to tell that story of, uh, of promise and love and, 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 and how we lead. And uh, if we don't tell that story, uh, somebody's going to tell the story for us. Uh, amazing. Uh- well, this has been really, really uh, just a treat and uh, eye-opening, thought-provoking. One of those conversations that I think really makes us think it and hopefully brings about you know uh, the start of, of a conversation for a lot of people that I think is much needed. Uh, so uh, I want to finish with my, my final question, which I know you've heard me ask uh, as a longtime listener of the show, and that is, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, you know, I, I knew you were going to ask me that question too, right? But so... <laughs> Um, what makes you unmistakable is that a few things that when you die, your eulogy 
is such of how you lived your life, uh, what you represented, and the values that someone hears your eulogy and your eulogy becomes their life's epilogue. And I think that being unmistakable is that we are called to do things that if uh, they are not done through you and by you, they won't be uh, uh, done at all. And that there are things that people look to and people hear and they say that is distinctly uh, uh, Sean Dove. That is Sean Dove's uh, 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 fingerprint and that no one else could have done that uh, except for him. Hmm. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your story and, and your insights on all of the work that you're up to with our listeners. Where can people find out more uh, about what you're up to? And also, are there any requests that you have for our audience that they can help with, uh, you know, in terms of your own efforts? Sure. So I can um, be reached at, um, go to my website, um, blackmaleachievement.org. Uh, um, I personally uh, can be reached uh, at sdove at blackmaleachievement.org. Uh, that is uh, my uh, email address. And uh, I am on Twitter and I am on, on, on uh, Instagram. And um, I believe that. Um, this is not, uh, when we talk about black male achievement, um, black America's uh, journey, right? Uh, this is America's uh, journey, right? And so there is something that everybody can do, uh, no matter gender or, or, or race. And uh, uh, I would ask folks to go to uh, our website and uh, become a member. Um, and join uh, the campaign for Black Male Achievement. Uh, there are ways that you can devote your time, your talent, um, and your treasure uh, as a, an ally and a supporter and a member uh, in the movement. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills 
whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.